In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're going to bring you a coronavirus update. After that, we'll take you to Murphy's Corner, talk about some of the new stuff that he's been doing. Following Murphy's Corner, we're going to talk about the upcoming legalization of marijuana. Well, assuming it passes, but it looks like there's a pretty good chance. After that, uh, it's going to get kind of dark. We're going to talk about a New Jersey judge that got assassinated. I'm sure everyone has saw that kind of links with the whole Epstein case and stuff. We're not going to dive too deep into that. We're saving that uh, like a real deep dig next week, but it needs to be mentioned this week. After that, we're going to talk about states that were added to the quarantine list in New Jersey and some other new uh, measures for preventing um, a second wave from hitting New Jersey from people uh, going outside the state or people outside the state coming here. After that, uh, we're going to give you an update on a story that we covered. Um, I don't remember when. I think it was like a week or two ago. I had to do yeah. with movie theaters suing the state. We got an update on that. So it's kind of funny. We'll, you, we'll tell you what it's about. Uh, after the headlines, Casey's going to talk a bit about Paul Robeson's biography. So yeah. that's going to be really interesting. Look forward to it. And I'm going to dive into the New Jersey primary results because we now basically have all the information we need and we can uh, analyze that and see what exactly happened. Starting Very off with exciting the week. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it is exciting. Start off with the coronavirus stuff. The numbers are like still basically trending downward. So if, like from last week, we had uh, basically about 200 300 cases a day the weekend numbers are always like really low like there was one on from the 17th it claims that we only have like 50 but that 17th was a friday like friday saturday and sunday all kind of uh have under reporting and then that's just like been the case since we started reporting and now we're like up to as of july 21st uh 293 about a day so basically nothing's changed it's kind of like flat at a, at a like low uh, 300 uh, to mid 200 a week, which is good. Our deaths haven't really increased. We're still around 15,737, which is that's good. That's good news. And still hovering around uh, the total amount of cases of like 179,000, almost 180,000, which makes sense that we're now not jumping up, you know, 3,000, 4,000 a day. It's mainly now the coronavirus pandemic. Is mainly out of the Northeast and just like ravaging the rest of the country. I actually have a little update on that to give you an idea of how bad it is in the rest of the country. Uh, a friend of mine is a nurse, and so she gets notifications. Like at the height of coronavirus in New Jersey and, and in New York City, they were really paying premium for nurses from outside the uh, state to like move and like work here because they're that's how. Like nurses were getting sick. So like ICU nurses, for instance, in New York City, were making around $5,000 a week to come here and work or come there wow. and work. Yeah, it's a lot. In Florida, they're advertising now $7,000 a week. It's like higher than at the height of... Wow. Uh, yeah, it's how bad the de- uh, high the demand for ICU nurses are and stuff. Yeah, and, and I can only imagine like, like once you, as a nurse... Like anyone in the medical profession right now, you're sacrificing your own health to save the public in any way that you can. And if you were to go to Florida, I mean, that's a big thing that nurses in New Jersey who work in New Jersey were really worried about and all over the world is like, you are putting your life on the line, number one. And number two, if you don't isolate from your family in your home, then you are putting everyone else in jeopardy in your own home. That's right. So like the solitude that people in the medical profession have been facing 
for this entire time. And like some people complain, you know, average citizens are complaining. It's like, you don't know exactly <laughs> how bad it could be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just looking around at the other states and it's actually pretty impressive how bad Florida's doing. Florida has, <laughs> as of right now, 369,000 confirmed cases. Now remember, New Jersey is a much more densely populated state than Florida. Florida, while Florida has a lot more population than New Jersey, it has like 21 million. Jersey has around 9 million. Like I think it's like 8.8 .8 or something like that. It still kind of shows you how bad Florida is dealing with this. Yeah, I like, think they're like, actually not in, only are they inviting nurses to combat Corona. I think they're also inviting people who have Corona to come to Florida to help spread it. So it's, you know, yeah. mixed messages from Florida. For real. <laughs> so hopefully the other states get it under control soon and we can all kind of enjoy the level of coronavirus that New Jersey has and slowly fades away. Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm not going to even be cynical. <laughs> uh, so what's going on in Murphy's Corner? Okay, Murphy's Corner, a uh, few executive orders have passed and couple of them, well, one of them in particular is a little funny to me, just because I had confusion about it as well when I read it last week. So executive order signed on the 17th, because we're recording on the 22nd. I think we last covered the executive order 165. So this week covering executive order 166. So Governor Murphy signs executive order creating greater oversight and accountability for federal COVID-19 resources on the 17th, which is, you know, sounds good. <laughs> and then um, Executive Order 167, Governor Murphy signed Executive Order directing U.S. and New Jersey flags to fly at half-staff in honor of U.S. Representative John Lewis, and this was on the 18th. And on the 20th, Governor Murphy signed Executive Order 168, which allows the resumption of contact practices and competitions for certain organized sports in outdoor settings. So that was signed on the 20th. And then also on the 20th, Executive Order 169, Governor Murphy signs Executive Order, which clarifies Executive Order number 164 <laughs> and states that the postponement of annual municipal and county party committee reorganization me meetings is only applicable to municipal party committees and county party committees that held elections during the July primary elections. So that's a lot of arties and committees and meetings and... <laughs> it basically doesn't affect or, or, uh, anyone who like doesn't do these <laughs> things, right? <laughs> exactly. That's what it yeah. seems like. He had to clarify it, I guess, because I, I know what that meant, but whatever. You know, but that's it for Murphy's Corner. I, you know, nothing, everything seems pretty by the book for this, uh, this review of what he's been doing. But wait, so you're saying that he somehow, like, the narrative is that he's this dictator right now and he's <laughs> uh, just trying to seize power. But the last few executive orders have been kind of just like routine bureaucratic stuff. Uh, yeah. Even use, could it could it be that like he just used what powers were necessary to curb the infection rate, and yeah. then now that that's been done, like it's kind of it. You would you would think that, and I think yeah. we're gonna have the people who are upset about the gyms still not being reopened. At least they can 
go outside and play some organized sports, you know, at least, at least they have that. (laughs) But I think this is a good segue into our headlines. So this is from the source, uh, marijuanamoment.net. Our favorite source. (laughs) The title is New Jersey governor says legalizing marijuana, a quote, no brainer for coronavirus economic recovery. So this was published uh, last week by Kyle, I think it's pronounced Yeager. (laughs) So the governor of New Jersey said on Tuesday that legalizing marijuana could simultaneously help the state recover economically from the coronavirus pandemic while also promoting racial justice. So in an interview on the radio program, Jim Kerr, anytime, Phil Murphy, recognize that the state is going to need to be innovative in order to generate the revenue needed amid the health crisis. And a co-host said cannabis could be a part of the solution, and the governor agreed. He said, quote, as you probably know, I've been on that from day one. (laughs) The legislator (laughs) hasn't been able to get there, but absolutely. That's, to me, an incredibly smart thing to do. He said, we're not inventing marijuana. It exists. <laughs> he goes on to say, quote, it's it's got a huge social justice piece for me. The overwhelming percentage of persons nailed in our criminal justice system are persons of color. It's a no-brainer in that respect. It's a job creator, it's a tax revenue raiser, it checks a lot of boxes. I hope we'll get there sooner than later. And as our we've our listeners know, and as we've reported in the past, it's up for the vote in November for New Jerseyans about passing and legalizing marijuana in our state. So, yes. yeah. So if you don't really care about the presidential election or any of that stuff, but you, you, this is an issue that you do like at the very least, you probably should get involved to vote for for this. This is something that you you can actually have a direct effect on. Yeah. Uh, so it's worth doing it. I mean, it's legalizing marijuana, people. This is something that people have been wanting for. <laughs> for like decades (laughs) and other states have already started doing it and New Jersey just lagged behind because uh, go back and watch a couple of the episodes we had with Colin he talked about this the dynamics we're not going to go over it again here yeah uh, uh, the assembly yeah with Steve Sweeney and the state senate and the assembly versus uh Murphy which um Murphy's I think actually making a smart play right now agreeing with that talking about how not only the racial justice aspect but like look we're a state with that got hit really hard and our economy's crashed, this could actually help the economy, which kind of puts it on the onus of the more politicking Steve Sweeney and others who, like, don't really have any principle. They're just, like, trying to stop Murphy from passing marijuana because they, like, hate that he became governor and they're they're not, basically. So, like, it's going to be very much harder to continue that sort of, like, backstabby politics stuff when uh, the the answer is right in front of us. And the people get Yeah. And uh, we reported also that in the past, I guess, like a month ago, that the Assembly passed a cannabis decriminalization bill, and that would make up um, that would make up possession of up to two ounces uh, civil Did penalty without go, the threat of jail time. Anywhere? I've never, I haven't actually seen that reported, and I don't think we actually yeah. followed up. Like, we'll it, have to it, do that another time, but yeah. yeah. So I think it's it should be in the Senate still. Are uh, they even, like? Are they like recessed right now? Are like they, how most of what are they doing? Good question. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We should know. Maybe yeah. that'll be another segment. Is like, what are they up to? Um, yeah. <laughs> right Thank after Murray. <laughs> and the I the one thing I do want to point out that 
there's com- there's conversations about our neighboring states if they're going to follow suit if we legalize. So Pennsylvania and New York are both discussing whether it's going to be put up to a vote, whether and that's the big thing about this is are you going to allow the people? Are you going to bring it to the people to vote? Are you going to be able to pass it in your uh, your state assembly in your Senate with your governor signing yeah. off? So yeah, so that's a big question. It, it is. It is. Plus, uh, the pressure to pass these the legalization of marijuana, like all the different types of bills, increases as, as like bordering states do it too. So if New Jersey does it first, well, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, Connecticut, and uh, like Delaware and and New York are all going to want to do it because their citizens are going to be going to the New Jersey, New Jersey <laughs> to, to buy products, which of course they can't bring back i mean some obviously will uh, yeah well do i think that, that's that's but... the thing is like you could decriminalize it in those states and then it won't be an issue if you if you come over the border to new jersey it's like fireworks exactly. essentially exactly. But, that, but at that point if you're decriminalizing you're just losing tax revenue to new exactly. jersey exactly so it's, it's like gonna be just do it. it's one thing if colorado does it because it's so far away from yeah um like our states that that the effect doesn't happen much other than we get to say like why does colorado have it and we don't Whereas like the neighboring states of Colorado have all had to deal with the fact that their citizens are just like driving over to Colorado and yeah. just getting around. <laughs> and what I do, big... what I also like too, is that through Corona, our area, like our neighboring states, we're all cooperating and communicating with one another. So I think it's all going to be in the same respect with this issue. It's like if we pass it, then the neighboring states are going to be more incentivized to pass it. And we're going to have the relationship where we're communicating across the border yeah. and making sure everything's by the book. There's revenue, you know what I mean? Like it's that's a, a win dynamic. for everyone. That's a dynamic I've been thinking about a lot lately that I'd like to maybe dive deeper in, in the future as this stuff develops and we can see more of it. A lot of states in the West, they, I forget what they called it. It's like the Western Pact or whatever, like a bunch of states. <laughs> it's literally what they're calling it. It's like a bunch of states got together and decided like, this is how we're going to handle COVID. And we did our own thing here. That's an interesting political dynamic of states doing regional yeah, cooperation like because the federal government's basically abandoned them. And it's worth seeing like, is this a temporary thing or like how is this going to develop uh, going forward for other issues? Yeah, it'll be interesting because you have like in the South, what do they call it? You have the like the Bible Bell and the, conf- yeah, like the, what is it? The Southern strategy is what they called it when they're yeah, basically yeah. <laughs> doing Southern racist. The Southern strategy was basically using, like it was racist, but the, they used like dog whistles to appeal to like racist white people in the South. Yeah. yeah. But then this will be like the opposite of that where it's camaraderie and health first and safety first and maybe education, you know, yeah. who knows? And that was hopefully safe. <laughs> Moving on, there was huge news that rocked the entire country. It was all over the internet. And it's that a New Jer- there was an attempted assassination of a New Jersey judge. So And they missed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is kind of crazy. It was It was in my backyard. Judge. Yeah. Not literally, so, but like so, my neighborhood. Yeah, not <laughs> There's a federal judge of the in New Jersey. I'm gonna mispronounce her name. Esther Salas. Salas? She, Maybe Silas. Silas, something like that. Something. You know we don't pronounce them correctly on this. So basically, <laughs> this judge has been on a lot of high-profile cases, including investigating Deutsche Bank. There's some connections to Epstein. Not that she has connections to Epstein, just that the cases that she had had ongoing lawsuits with ties yeah. to the Epstein case. Don't and, get it twisted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to mistake this. And uh, surprisingly enough, uh, something you mentioned, uh, was it last week or the week before, um, 
the uh, housewife stuff. See, the Real Housewives of, of New Jersey. Or the Real Housewives of New Jersey case with some of the, the Judice, stuff. Judice tax evasion scandal mm-hmm. that imprisoned both Teresa and Juicy yeah. Joe. She's also done stuff with gangs, like cases where she ruled against gangs and a bunch of other stuff. So this is a pretty high profile judge. And his name's Roy Den Hollander. He posed, he's like a lawyer who posed as a FedEx person knocked on the door and then tried to kill the federal judge. But uh, I think she was in the basement, I think is the story. I, I can't remember the exact details, but he uh, basically he ended up killing, I think like everyone else, right? It was her, was it her husband and, and son? He, no, her son, her son was killed on the scene, but I think her, husband, her husband was wounded. I think he might be in urgent yeah, um, so I, intensive I care that. right now. Yeah, wounded. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. shocking. Yeah, and then, just to make it even weirder. So everyone was like, oh my God, this has to do with the Epstein stuff, which kind of seems like it does. Uh, we have to dig more into it. But then what kind of makes it even seem more like the Epstein stuff is that the guy dies. The the assassin literally yeah, dies. Yeah, he killed himself. Just like self-inflicted Epstein gun wound shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to cover this next week as like our segment. Like this is such a... The whole Epstein story plus this edition like requires almost like an entire episode unto itself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna kind of leave most of the comments back, but like if you haven't seen this stuff or you didn't hear about this, like you need to go on the internet and start reading about it. There's it gets yeah, follow deep, the conspiracy especially with threads. like the yeah. Well, I hate using the phrase conspiracy because people like dismiss conspiracy theories. Yeah. Which is it's good to be skeptical of like things like conspiracy theories or like anything in general, right? But like conspiracies actually happen. That's yes. a real thing. That's actually a real crime you can get in trouble you for. It's like conspiring for stuff. Because like the idea that people with similar interests don't get together to plan decide to plan what to do, which is just what conspiring means, like is crazy. Like it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's we yeah. I think I covered it in the the Housewives Mafia episode of how um the ex husband was charged with conspiracy to uh basically and like basically he hired someone to beat up his ex-wife and her fiance and all that was in exchange for a discount at a wedding you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah conspiracy could be as silly as that or it could be as big as this oh yeah or it can be as like yeah as, as big as some of the other stuff and with the epstein stuff uh i think it's people are finally coming around to the idea that there is something here clearly possibly clearly. a global pedophile elite, uh, elite. yeah at the yeah. top <laughs> <laughs> like we joke but like when you look it's at who's true. like accused it's like the clintons you have the donald trump you have yeah. prince andrew saudi princes it was uh, a the former israeli on. prime minister and like a bunch of other people and you're just like it literally yeah. is like yeah and for for people who still don't oh, believe in conspiracy yeah. who people who still don't believe in conspiracy theories we covered up in an early episode when i was doing uh, New Jersey trivia of scandals where the former um, governor of New Jersey had a a gay affair with his former Israeli security head of like a uh, national security. And that man, the Israeli man was actually supposed to be like a plant from the, I think it was George Soros, someone. No, it was, um, who is uh, the uh, the property developer family who's married to Trump's daughter? 
Um, oh, the Kushners. The Kushners, yes. So it was like yeah, a, yeah. the plant from the Kushner's dad or something like that, where it's like, I believe it. Sketchy things happen, and it's it's weird how they align. And when everything's on the table, it's like there's different. You know, the red string, the, the red string connects in a way you can't ignore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and plus then you have to bring in other things. Like this judge was literally investigating or part or, or ruling on a case that was investigating Deutsche Bank too. Deutsche Bank, we know, is one of the most criminal banks on the, in the world. I know, like banks in general are pretty criminal, especially the yeah, really large mega about? finance ones. <laughs> that Deutsche Bank is like, they've been caught over the years, literally laundering money for like criminal mafia entities. They were, I believe, actually th this this one might have been HSBC. HSBC. Was it also the Panama Papers related to that? Yeah, Panama Papers basically just showed how much money that all of the countries like like they, they basically go to some of these mega <laughs> banks and then they all hide a, a, a money like everywhere else and what a uh, problem this is another conspiracy the person who leaked the uh, Pan panama papers that reporter sorry, another person the person uh well yeah their their car exploded <laughs> and they died uh oh. they, they they were at a malt they're a maltese journalist i believe uh, so a journalist from malta um oh, wow. but yeah it, uh so we're going to talk all about that next week in our segments um we'll, we'll really dive deep into Probably the Epstein, my guess is the Epstein thing generally is like background, but then also like the specifics of like, as much as we can find out about what this judge was covering, who the assassin is. He's weird. I've read some stuff uh, about like, he's like anti-feminist. Did you yeah. see that? He's like, he's he like, could be one like of those. A, he's like an incel judge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm like, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just so weird. But it's just so crazy. It's so New Jersey. That's what I love about. I mean, I don't love uh, that the federal judge was like her whole family was targeted when, like, I don't want to say obviously she was the intended target, but that's what it seems like. And having to live with that burden for you know the rest of your life, that's that's a huge burden to carry. But it's it's only it's so interesting because it is so bizarre, and there's so many string theories that are coming yeah. off of this where the who done it i mean she probably as well is wondering you know what was the motivation what what real and you know there's going to be an investigation and the police and the investigators are going to come out with their theories and then here's the other thing is, is is intimidation yeah this is intimidation because the associate press i'm gonna quote real quick reports this is from cbs news associate press reports that Sal salas is presiding over a lawsuit in which deutsche bank uh, investors assert the bank made false and misleading statements about its anti-money laundering policies and didn't keep tabs on high-risk customers, including the convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. So, like, just imagine that you wanted to, like, ensure that these cases went nowhere, which you just stick with, like, we've all watched the mob movies where they do this, so, like, this yeah. isn't too crazy. Like, you, you, you kill people in the judge's family, or, or you kill the judge, and even if she gets removed from that case, because, I mean, I, I imagine she probably doesn't want to do it and there might actually be questions about uh i don't know if this is a fact but like people that she might not be able to rule on this case anymore if she feels like it's related you know what i'm saying that might be like a conflict of interest so yeah. it goes to another judge who is going to look and be like well you know that fam that person almost got, got died or had their family murdered <laughs> like that's yeah. going to be the background assumption of reviewing this case yeah and which, i think that's that's oh she's too. also yeah she's sorry she's also under uh 24-hour like i think fbi uh protection or surveillance i'm pretty sure yeah. I just read that. 
Yeah, and that's a that's a thing that's also interesting is because it it you have to look at the story under the three lenses. So like, is this revenge? So a past case, a past ruling that she's done. Is this a current case, like you just said, where she's ruling on this case? It's on her docket, and now it's good. Now all her cases that might stem to this guy or might motivate him in any kind of way, it's going to be a conflict of interest. So she's going to be removed from her cases potentially as the investigation goes on and then for future, you know well, what I mean? She, might she probably was do it. Yeah. Like, she probably she be also... in mourning over losing her son and possibly losing her husband. Yeah. How, how could she, how could she work under circumstance? Like it wouldn't be shocking if she takes like a leave of absence. Like, I mean, or I would... like just retires. <laughs> I would. Yeah. And then, so... <laughs> so is that, it's not cowardly. Like your family just got murdered. Yeah, but that's that's the that's the last point. So is this gonna is this supposed to be a reason for her to retire early, or is it a reason for her to take a leave of absence and like move all her future cases on the on her schedule to another judge, and that way it'd be prevention from keeping her from you know inflicting any kind of judgment call on any kind of case. So. I guess the investigators are going to be looking at that. and um, But we're going to do our own segment on conspiracy theories, I guess, or just like facts, <laughs> you know? Definitely. We should... Facts that are sketchy. We definitely need to cover and follow this case uh, and dig deep into the background, as much background as possible. Because let's be frank, like how many people are actually going to trust whatever the investigation is? Like, do you... Remember, the official narrative still is that Jeffrey, uh, I can't speak, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Yeah. And, like, nobody believes that. For, like, good reason that no nobody believes that he killed himself. But, yeah, so wild, wild, wild story. Same. Yeah. So moving on, New Jersey's adding states to its quarantine list, which has kind of grown. Ten new states were added <laughs> on Tuesday, bringing the total to 31. So Delaware kind of complained because Delaware was like added on the list, taken off and then added back on. <laughs> uh, it's kind of funny. Note, Not fair, but, Delaware. Yeah. Do you, do you have the full list of, of Yeah, now I'm looking at it. But my question is, is that when this because like when this is in effect, okay, what if you went to Delaware the day before they were added and then they were removed? Is it? Uh, you know like the cutoff like i went to i'll admit it i went to maryland and i went to maryland last week last week that was before and uh, that was before they were added and so when you told me maryland was added that you know made uh, uh, who knows like (laughs) yeah yeah no i know what you mean i'm not sure honestly i don't don't know how yeah what did maryland do what did should work what did delaware do that's what i want to know to go on off on off I didn't get their cases under control, or they temporarily did and didn't. I guess I have no idea. Yeah. Um, close a little. Well, we have how many? Do you, do you want to read the thirty-one? Yes. Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Arizona, California, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, New. North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington, Wisconsin. And there you have it. So that's more than (laughs) half. Before we move on, I wanted to mention there's another restriction that's happening. Uh So people who fly into New Jersey are going to be asked to fill out a survey about out-of-quarantine, out-of-state quarantine. 
So according to NJ.com, this article is written by Brent Johnson, people who are flying into New Jersey will be asked to fill out an electronic survey starting Monday as the Garden State continues to call for travelers arriving from 22 states that qualify as coronavirus hotspots to voluntarily self-quarantine 14 days. Obviously, when this article was written, it was right before they added like uh, nine more. Airlines are going to announce both the quarantine advisory and information about the survey before travelers depart for New Jersey and while they're on their flight. Uh, the survey will ask people information about where they're traveling from, their residence, and their destination. The information will then be sent to county health, health departments who will call, uh, they misspelled a bunch of stuff, who will then <laughs> call the traveler to request them to self-quarantine and explain where they can be tested for COVID-19. So that's interesting. This is a great thing to do. Uh, this is part of contact tracing, and this is a good yeah. thing to do. Following people who, get, who come in, uh, figuring out what uh, where they're going, where they're coming what they, from. What they've touched. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I, I like this measure. This is good. Good news. So moving on from that, uh, do, you have a, do you have an update on the movie theater lawsuit? Yes, more good news for New Jersey. So <laughs> uh, this is an article from thepatch.com. So New Jersey movie theaters lose bid to reopen amid coronavirus. So <laughs> this is an article by Russ Crespiani. Crespiolini, that's what we're going to say. Uh, so U.S. District Judge Brian Martinotti denied a request from the movie from the movie theater owners to reopen for business during COVID-19. And uh, But the issue apparently is far from being resolved. So AMC Theaters and several other plaintiffs said in their lawsuit filed on the 6th of this month that the closure of cinemas in the Garden State while churches and other venues have been permitted to reopen to the public was a violation of the businesses, the businesses' right to <laughs> due process and equal protection. And the suit named Governor Governor Phil Murphy and the state health commissioner, Judith Petroselli. So the judge said that Murphy and um, Petroselli, by August 4th, have to show movie theaters um, exactly why they have to remain closed or why they must be treated differently than other venues. So it's not a, a complete squash of the movie theaters in New Jersey's goals to reopen, but this is going to be interesting on how the governor and the health commissioner work together to you know, use science and... <laughs> I think it'll be pretty easy. There's been a lot of studies that show that you don't have to be in a room with recirculated air for long for coronavirus to spread. And yeah. what is uh, a movie theater but sitting in, a, even if you have a half or quarter capacity, you're in there yeah. for an uh, hour and a half to like three hours max, depending on how long your movie is. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be pretty easy to show why movie theaters shouldn't be shouldn't be open in a similar way that it was easy to show why gyms are are bad to open because you know people exercise and they breathe out more, which and, and more have more heavily, so it yeah. makes it spread easier. It's gonna I think it's gonna be pretty easy for the state to make this case. That's putting aside whether or not anyone even agrees with it. It's just the fact. It's gonna be easy for the state to make the case that movie theaters aren't the same thing as like outdoor dining. Like, yeah, because open open movie theaters you know like drive-ins and stuff like that they are open so it's That's not thing. It's, it's, it's not it's against not, yeah movies yeah. you know it's, it's not, not against not anti-fun 
Like, uh, figure yeah. out how to modify your, uh, yourself to go do that. Uh, yeah. You might have to bring out a, like, projector and just, like, have things out in the parking lot of the movie theaters or something like that, which obviously is going to make you less profit than you normally would, but, uh, like, adjust. These are crazy. T- everyone else has, has to adjust. I don't know why business people, yeah. I think they're exempt I, from to adjust. I think it's also that they have to... Once they get a list of things that they have to do in order to open, if it's going to be too expensive, it's, if it's going to be too annoying, and it's going to look dangerous to, you know, their customers, and it's going to be a win for New Jersey by default. You know what I mean? I don't think this isn't yes. going to be the last time we see this, but we're probably going to see more of it as people aren't following the orders across the country. <laughs> you know? It, I mean, just look at the numbers. We're almost there. Well, New Jersey's almost there. there. New Jersey's almost there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. New Jersey's almost there. The country is not. The country is actually worse off than it was when New Jersey was at its height. Uh, Coronavirus in the United States is worse now than it was months ago. Yeah, I think it's two million. I think it's two million positive cases in the country. I'm gonna look it up right now. Yeah, it's not it's not pretty for the country, but it is nice for New Jersey temporarily because what we what we talk about every week is you know. The loose borders and how people can you underestimated go. it. Yeah, it was it, it, it's almost four million now. Ooh, that's great. Cases. Yeah, we're at over one hundred and forty-four thousand deaths. We get wow. about we get about a thousand deaths a well, day, and we get like about sixty thousand new cases a day. Well, that that about rounds up the the headlines. Yeah. <laughs> Ending the headlines on a positive note. <laughs> Casey, how about you talk to us about Paul Robeson? Yeah. Okay. So human being. So this week I wanted to share as much of the life story of a New Jersey icon as I could fit into a segment. So Paul Robeson, he is one of the most infamous people that I know of that went to Rutgers. I mean, there's a lot of great people, but his story was one that I never really knew the depth of. I just saw him in his football gear and I saw him like at the Barnes and Nobles in New Brunswick where it's like uh, you see him and his football gear, but you also see him in his cap and skull uh, like robe. But Paul Robeson, much like Rutgers, I think the the saying is Jersey roots, global reach. Uh, <laughs> so he is someone who started off in New Jersey, but his his life and his legacy span the entire globe. So I'm going to try and focus on a lot on his family history and his own history and um, get into like some sketchy stuff that happened towards the end of his life uh, because of his political activism and involvement. So here goes. So Paul Robeson was an Aries born in Princeton, New Jersey at the turn of the century on April 9th, 1898. So he became this legendary person, like everyone in New Jersey, like you'll see streets named after him or buildings named after him or uh, scholarship, like his his impact is all over New Jersey because, you know, we're so proud that he came from here. But his his history or his story evolved from tragic means. So his father, Reverend William Drew Robeson, originally came from... Let me get the right pronunciation. I wrote it down. Father originally came from Ibo in Africa. And um, I'm going to go into a little bit 
about what that location is. But he originally came from there and he was born into slavery. His family originally came from there and he was born in slavery in North Carolina. And the place where they came from in Africa is located at present day South Central, South Eastern Nigeria in a bit of Equatorial Guinea. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but... And I want to cite that I got a lot of of my information from Wikipedia. So sometimes I'm going to quote directly from it. And this is one of those uh, points. So Chambers 2020 or 2002 argued that many of the slaves taken from this area across the Middle Passage would have been um, from this descent. So I'm pronouncing it right, Evo. And these slaves were usually sold to Europeans by the uh, Confederacy um, the Arrow Confederacy, who kidnapped and bought slaves from the villages from this part of Africa. And the these specific slaves may have not been victims of like slave raiding wars or expeditions, but perhaps debtors or Igbo people who committed within their communities alleged crimes. So with the goal uh, for freedom, these specific people were known to the British colonists as being rebellious and having a high rate of suicide to escape slavery. So they were, and this is a, a big point that I wanted to highlight because often when we're in the U.S. taught about the slave trade, you don't really hear about um, specific groups of people who were known like you're just taught like a a blanket statement of like Africans were enslaved and the colon you learn the colonial history but you don't know like specific parts of Africa and the different types of cultures of people from there and like like different kinds of just like fire that are in these people that are very obviously going to be in any kind of person you enslave you know what I mean like this is so I wanted to highlight that and the Ibu people who were enslaved, they always had like, they had this reputation that they would, um, would rather die than be enslaved. And that's something that in, you know, my history class, it was never really like hit home. Do you, do you agree or do you disagree with like how slavery is taught? <laughs> in, uh, uh, I, I, I agree that the main thing briefly that we learned about slavery in in high school for me was that it was like bad right and that was pretty much yeah just how it was described <laughs> it, it, it was bad and we don't really learn about the difference the, the the actual differences of slavery in the different colonies it's basically native americans were slaves then it, they were, those slaves were replaced by african slaves and then you skip ahead like 200 years and it was ended yeah. in 1865. <laughs> and that's, that's pretty much, it was ended completely if you made it like AP classes, you got like a little bit more about like, you know, certain slave rebellions that might've happened, things like that, like Nat Turner's rebellion or like the yeah. uh, John Brown's attempt to end slavery, things you like hear, that. Like, you hear vaguely about Harriet Tubman and like, yeah. that's about it. Well, you, you don't really learn why slavery happened. Beside, uh, you don't really learn like what was its purpose, like like uh, things like that. Like you, you, you briefly learn like, oh yeah, they like farmed stuff. Yeah, right? and the precursor like, to it just, too, like yeah. the 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 regions of Africa and mm-hmm. the politics of those regions. Like you oh, focus so much yeah. on the European ancestry, and you know you can name all the European countries, but like I forget which I really forget which. It's a radical black author, but I can't remember which. He said, uh, 
something commenting about how slavery is taught in the U.S. and you, they say like basically you would expect that the purpose of slavery, if you read like American textbooks, was to just like reproduce white su supremacy as if it wasn't the pur purpose was to pick cotton to make profits and white yeah. supremacy was the justification for slavery. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have you have it accurate. We don't really learn it too well, <laughs> even though we acknowledge it as terrible. We don't learn what it yeah. is. You don't learn really anything of importance, uh, you know, American public education. That was the origin story of his dad. So when his dad is 15 years old, he ends up escaping from the plantation he's on, I think in North Carolina, with his brother a lot through the Underground Railroad. So they made their way to Philadelphia, and then William would then enlist in the Union Army. And following the war, he studied theology at Lincoln College, where he would meet uh, Mary Louisa, so Paul Robeson's mother. So Mary Louisa, uh, her last name was, her maiden name was Bastille, I think. So she was from a well-known Black Quaker family of mixed ancestry. So she, her family also, their origins go back to the same place in Africa, the Evo. <laughs> Evo, and so they were so African, Lenape, Native American, and Anglo-American descent. So her family had been free since the mid-1700s when her great-grandfather, his name was Sirius Bastille, had been freed from his owners, quote-unquote, uh, in Burlington, New Jersey after years of service. So Sirius was one of the founders of the Free African Society in 1787, which held religious services and aided uh, free Africans and their descendants. So Mary, or Maria, so Maria, she was a teacher and worked as a tutor when she first met William, and her family believed that she was quote unquote marrying down when she and William got together and they ended up having this is from Wikipedia specifically so anytime I try to like cite them there's so much information here so anytime I'm you know I said earlier who is a Wikipedia uh quote so they had seven children Gertrude who died young William Drew Jr. called Bill uh John Bunyan Reeve called Reed, <laughs> Benjamin, Marion, and Paul Leroy Robeson, who's Paul Robeson, the youngest. And they had another child that died at birth, um, but the name is not known. So Maria would Maria was practically blind from cataracts and would die in a house fire before Paul turned seven years old. So shortly before Maria's death, William had a the father had to step down from his position at the Witherspoon Street Presbyterian Church in Princeton. And the church was originally built for the black members of the first Presbyterian Church of Princeton, um, which is now known as the, the Nassau uh, Presbyterian Church. And this is directly from Wikipedia. So Robeson, the, his father, Paul Robeson's father, was outed by his, or was ousted as a minister by his church after 20 years of service. And he was said to have aligned himself, quote unquote, on the wrong side of a church fight, having refused to bow to the pressure from the quote unquote, white residents of Princeton that he ceased to quote, speak out against social injustice. So upon his dismissal, Reverend William Robeson bypassed any need to quote, to recriminate and rebuke as I review in the past, 
He said, and I think upon many scenes, my heart is filled with love. And in closing his last address to the Princeton congregation, he told them to not be discouraged. Do not think your past work is in vain. So this was a, a, a constant theme, of course, for the Robeson family in, I mean, New Jersey is, it was a union state. But that doesn't mean that racism and segregation wasn't happening in our state, which is another thing that New Jersey history kind of, you know, glosses over. Like yeah, we I think the whole tend, North does that. We tend to think, oh no, that's a Southern thing, <laughs> but it's <laughs> it was here as well. It was here in Philadelphia. It was here in you know the the Princeton area too. So it's like it's not. It's not something that we're taught and I wanted to highlight it because like here it is at a church, you know what I mean? They had to have a separate congregation for their their black worshipers and their white worshipers. And because his father was, they didn't get into like the the breakdown of the fight, but it was, it's obvious like he was, you know, calling out injustice as anyone who, you know, you don't have to practice religion to know right from wrong. So he was calling out the wrong and he lost his job because of it. So, um, and this is shortly before uh, Maria died. So Paul's uh, mom in the fire. So William moved the family to, which was basically Paul and his older brother, Ben, because his older siblings had already grown and left the house. Uh, he moved them, packed them up and moved them to Westville, New Jersey, where they lived above a shop in its attic. And Paul Robeson would go to Somerville High School. And in high school, he started getting his first experiences uh, performing on stage. So he performed in Julius Caesar and Othello, and he sang in choir, and he was a major athlete. He played football, basketball, baseball, and he ran track. And he was such a natural athlete on the field and in track. And he was often met with racial attacks from the sidelines that he would ignore. So then he would graduate high school as valedictorian with a scholarship to Rutgers College, now Rutgers University. And at Rutgers, he followed basically that pattern. Like he was a natural born speaker, a natural athlete, and he was also a natural performer, which I think is very different from, you know, you can speak in front of a crowd, and be comfortable with it, but to be able to sing and to memorize lines and, you know, also be so diverse in your athleticism, like it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> so he's kind of like a Renaissance man in that way. So he goes to Rutgers and he was the only African American student at Rutgers when he went there. And he would be the third ever to attend the college at the time. So while at college, he basically kept up his pattern of ex basically excelling at everything <laughs> and uh, also combating racism. So when he tried out for the football team, he ended up breaking his nose and uh, <laughs> dislocating his shoulder. And so to say his teammates were excessive to him during his tryout would be an understatement. And the coach reportedly like acknowledged his ability to overcome the attacks and cited that as earning him a spot on the team. So 
During his sophomore year on the team, actually, he was benched because the, the Scarlet Knights were playing against a Southern team that refused to share the field with him. So I want to note that he's dealing, of course, with racism in such a way that and with such violence, but still excelling at everything. Like you would think that you would give up, you know, a broken nose while you're trying out for a football team. Like that would, that would deter me from doing anything athletic, but still he carries on and off the football field, he ends up joining the debate team and he unofficially joined the Rutgers Glee Club because he would sing wherever he could, but there was a requirement at the time that required clubbers to attend all white events. So again, because of racism in New Jersey, (laughs) he was unable to follow through with his commitments and be able to participate in everything that he was not only interested in, but he excelled at it. And he also joined other college sports on campus and he would end up graduating again (laughs) as valedictorian. And he had varsity letters in multiple sports and he was a member of the fraternity Phi Beta Kappa. And he was a member of the Rutgers University secret society called Cap and Skull. And in his valedictorian speech, he urged all his classmates to fight for the equality of all Americans. So like what an amazing story already, you know what I mean? To to say that he's, you know, he's almost already a legend, you know what I mean? In just Rutgers history and just New Jersey history, it's like such a fantastic story. So then he goes to study law at New York University and he would later transfer to Columbia University because while at law school, he ends up getting recruited to the NFL to play for the Akron Pros and later the Milwaukee Badgers. And also he would perform in plays and he also sang off Broadway. And Columbia is where he would begin dating and then marry uh, Eslanda. Her nickname was Essie Good. And she was a chemistry student and she would go on to work at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and eventually in the future, she becomes the the head of, I'm going to mispronounce this word, um, histological chemist of surgical pathology, and she would be the first uh, African-American person to hold such a position at the hospital. So after all of this work, <laughs> uh, Paul was in then, he begins to become a lawyer after he graduates law school, but then he um, turns down a career in the law because of widespread racism in the field. You know, he, <laughs> he spends all this time getting an education. And when he gets into his field of, of study, he, he can't do it because of racism. It's just insane. So then after pressure from Essie, cause she's at the time, she's supporting the two of them because she's a chemist and she kind of nags him into just saying, you know, pursue acting, pursue music, just do something. And then he becomes infamous for his his performances during the Harlem Renaissance. And he becomes so successful that Essie actually takes a break from work to become his manager full-time. So this is a direct quote from Wikipedia. So in 1928, Robeson played Joe in the London production of the American musical Showboat at the Theater Royale, and his rendition of Old Man River became the benchmark for all future performances of the song. And let me just, it does say, you'll know it when you hear it. And he ends up owning the song in a way that um, he's able to change the words because originally 
it had the N word in it. And then he changed it to another word and let me find the, um, and then he would also change basically the meaning of it later on when he got more politically active and politically involved. So But you hear his deep voice, his baritone voice. And that's uh, what he's he becomes known for. It's, it's a very, very deep, rich vocal tone. His signature sound, and that became one of the most infamous performances and songs that he's ever done. And it's really changed how that song was ever sung ever again. So... He ends up traveling the world, and this is a constant in his life. Whenever he's performing, he's traveling all over the globe because he is that good and that well-known, and he ends up getting into a number of affairs that Essie tended to overlook because, I guess, as is, as was then, as is now, it's kind of expected. Not that expected that you're going to have an affair if you're an actor or an actress, but that's just the entertainment industry as a whole is that, like, it's sketchy and to be successful like it is what it is kind of thing. And that was all well and good until he starred opposite of Peggy Ashcroft, which she was an English actress whose career would span over 60 years. She received the, the Dame title among a number of awards. I think she also won like an Academy Award, but he starred opposite her in a, the performance of Othello at London Savoy, Savoy Theater judge me. Uh, and he would be the first black actor to play Othello since Ira Aldridge did it in the 1800s. So Essie would then, after learning of the affair, look into getting a divorce while Paul and Peggy carried on their relationship. But Paul was advised not to marry Peggy and pursue that relationship, you know, as it would reportedly do a lot of damage to his reputation. Uh, he got <laughs> advised that from another from his new business agent, because I think Essie got kind of tired of like booking him to do things when he was cheating on her. Like, you know what I mean? Like if your whole life becomes this man and you're taking care of him and like you push him to go into this career and he ends up cheating on you and making you look like a fool when you're a highly educated woman, <laughs> you know, you're not going to really keep managing his business. So she then pursues her own career, which is where she gets that, um, the head, I think it's head chemist role at the hospital. So this is a direct quote from Wikipedia. So in early 1934, Paul Robeson enrolled in the School of um, Oriental and African Studies, so SOAS. It was a college under the umbrella of the University of London, where he studied phonetics, Swahili, and other African languages. And his quote-unquote sudden interest in African history and its influence on culture coincided with um, his essay titled I Want to Be African, wherein he wrote of his desire to embrace his ancestry. And his friends in the anti-imperialism movement and association with the British socialists led him to visit the Soviet Union. And um, they all her, him and Essie traveled um, to the Soviet Union on an invitation from, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, but Sergei? Uh, Sergei. Sergei. <laughs> and how do you, you know his last name? Which one? Which, which Sergei? Sergei. It's like, it's like Tom. <laughs> Russia. Sergei um, Einstein. 
Eisenstein? I don't know. I honestly don't know okay. this one. I'm but sorry. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds Eisenstein, right. Uh, in December 1934, and he did a stopover in Berlin, and that enlightened him to the racism in Nazi Germany. And on his arrival in Moscow in the Soviet Union, Robeson said, quote, here I am not a Negro, but a human being for the first time in my life. I walk with full, I walk in full human dignity. And I wanted to like underline that moment because today <laughs> you have a constant paranoia of Russia. And here today, you also have very obvious racism in all levels, in all different <laughs> ways in our country. And for him to say this, was a huge indicator and he's a very very public figure for so for him you know everyone's looking up to him because he's this icon like a living legend and so when he says a quote like this it's an indicator for the government to keep an eye on him because he is a very influential person he is a very very educated person and he is able to travel the world and be a real worldwide, global, influential figure. And typically, that is not <laughs> not well uh, liked in our government in history. So it is around this time that he becomes this enlightened political activist. And this is against heavy advice from his agent, because his agent's basically like everyone is, you're an actor, you're a performer, um, stick to that. You know, it's going to hurt your career if you get into politics. So his uh, he ends up becoming very vocal against fascists during the S Spanish Civil War. He was an, a, quote, an advocate for the Republican cause and the worst refugees. He ends up traveling to hospitals on invitations from John Borden Sanderson Henline. And he would sing to the wounded soldiers in the hospitals in 1942. He announces that he would not act in films because of the demeaning roles available to black actors. And he becomes uh, very sympathetic towards China's side in the, the second Sino-Japanese War. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he would then perform in benefit concerts for the cause. And that's a, a constant theme that he does is he will use his performing abilities to sing, to, I guess, to donate, like anything he could do with his talents to support the causes he believed in. So not only was he drawing a crowd for his performance and his his acting abilities, his singing abilities, but he's also drawing an audience for the causes, which is, you know, things that the government doesn't really like. So <laughs> this is another direct quote from Wikipedia. So after the mass lynching of four African-Americans on July 25th, 1946, uh, Robeson met with President Truman and admonished Truman by stating that if he did not enact legislation to end lynching, quote, the Negroes will defend themselves. And Truman immediately terminated the meeting and declared at the time uh, that the time was not right to propose anti-lynching legislation. Subsequently, uh, Robeson publicly called on all Americans to demand that Congress pass civil rights legislation. And this is the, the major moment that really puts Robeson on a on a global, basically, watch list. <laughs> so on June 20th, 1949, Robeson, this is a direct quote again from Wikipedia, um, Robeson spoke at the Paris Peace Congress, 
saying that, quote, we in America do not forget that it was on the blacks of the white workers from Europe and on the backs of millions of blacks that the wealth of America was built. And we are resolved to share it equally. We reject that any hysterical raving that urges us to make war on anyone. Our will to fight for peace is strong. We shall not make war on anyone. We shall not make war on the Soviet Union. We oppose those who wish to build up imperialist Germany and to abolish fascism in Greece. We wish peace with Franco's Spain despite her fascism. We shall support peace and friendship among all nations with Soviet Russia and the People's Republics. He was then he was then blacklisted for saying this in the mainstream press within the United States. So following this, he was removed from the Rutgers football record. He had TV appearances canceled and his passport was denied. And when he fought for his passport to be, you know, approved and let him travel. Um, the reason that was denied was, quote, his frequent criticism of the treatment of blacks in the United States should not be aired in foreign countries. So he was blacklisted and he wasn't, he basically was like on a travel ban again because of his influence and his, his speech, because to us, this isn't radical now, but then you have, um, this is right on the cusp of like McCarthyism and this is on the cusp of mass, I mean, I don't want to say ma today we're in a mass surveillance state, but this is like when activists are being targeted by like the CIA and the FBI because they want to watch what you're saying and they want to, you know, eliminate any kind of threat to, not to the country, but to like the, what do you, you know what I mean? It's like the status quo and him being who he is and coming from a family where this was his whole life, you know, of, you know, you have to, you educate yourself and you excel at everything. And just because of the color of your skin, you are treated and you are basically threatened with death simply for the color of your skin. And he's doing everything he can on his platform to make this not happen anymore. And again, with, <laughs> with us history, you don't hear about Paul Robeson. You don't even at Rutgers. The only thing you hear about him is that he was a, a football player and that he was, I think some people learned that he was the third African-American enrolled at Rutgers, but that, and you know, that he was, you know, a great singer and actor, but you don't hear about his activism. So this is a direct quote from Wikipedia. In 1956, Robeson called, uh, was called before HUAC after he refused to sign an affidavit um, affirming that he was not a communist. <laughs> In his testimony, he invoked the Fifth Amendment and refused to reveal his political affiliations. When asked why he had not remained in the Soviet Union because of his affinity with his political ideology, he replied, quote, because my father was a slave and my people died to build the United States and I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you and no fascist minded people will drive me from it. So after that hearing, Robeson stated, whether I am or am not a communist is irrelevant. The question is whether American citizens, regardless of the political beliefs or sympathies may enjoy their constitutional rights. 
So his passport was later restored in June 1958 through the Supreme Court decision of Kent versus Dooley's, which prohibited the banning of passports as it related to First Amendment free speech rights. And then he went on a comeback tour and began again performing around the world and, you know, keeping up with his political activism. He really used his platform to not only support his causes that he believed in, but also to really put a lens on it, to draw a spotlight to it. Because if he was involved, then more people knew about it. So this is where it gets <laughs> a little conspiracy theory-esque. So in the 1960s, his health began to deteriorate, and he began to suffer from major paranoia. And this led him to attempt suicide. And his son would later believe and say that his father's mental health issues were the result of MKUltra and the CIA and MI5's attempts to neutralize him. So this is a direct quote from Wikipedia, of course, like my only source. Uh, an FBI memo described Robeson's debilitated condition, remarking that his, quote, his death would be much publicized and would be used for communist propaganda, which made it necessary to continue surveillance. And that just proved that, not that there's MK Ultra and the CIA is, you know, doing mind games and trying to neutralize Paul Robeson, but there's actual evidence where it's saying that he was being followed and watched by both American and British surveillance programs. So around the mid-1960s, Paul would return to the United States and for the rest of his life, he would spend in seclusion to, and he would occasionally try to join civil rights movement events, but he had to step down because of his health issues. And following complications of a stroke on January 23rd, 1976, Paul Robeson died in Philadelphia at the age of 77. And this is a direct quote. So according to biographer Martin Duberman, contemporary postmortem reflections on Robeson's life in the quote, white American press ignored the continuing inability of white America to tolerate a black maverick who refused to bend, downplayed the racist component central to his persecution during his life as they paid him gingerly respect and tipped their hat to him as a great American, while the black American press, which had never overall been hostile to Robeson as the white press had, um, penned that his life would, quote, always be a challenge to white and black America. So conflicting with how he was portrayed, you know, his name was removed off of, you know, for example, the Rutgers football history roster and would later be returned because obviously, like, now we have revisionist history. We're looking back and we're saying, of course, he was an icon, yeah, a legendary athlete. As you mentioned, it's strange how it's returned, but what does it mean to just return his name but not tell his story? Yeah, it's exactly. it's almost like ignore. It's almost like his name's there, but it's all it's hollow. It's, it's yeah. missing it's like, all this amazing <laughs> history. But he, he was better than ninety percent of uh, the alums that Rutgers loves to. Yeah, to, to hail. Hail. Yeah. yeah, but to to wrap it up at his funeral, he there was a specific quote, and there was a play um, about him and his life that was created, and it was titled this quote. But people. Mm -hmm activists they referred to him as the tallest tree in our forest um because he was he was also a tall man but he was this this stuff of legends you know and like the 
when you say someone's a tall tree, you know, in this respect, you are saying that they emerged from the earth and they were able to grow to the height, the highest point in the forest, which if you know anything from my like biology class is like, it's, it's not an easy task to become the tallest tree in the forest. Cause you not only have to break through the trees before you, but you also have to not be taken down. And at his funeral, it was said that the quote, the tallest tree in our forest has fallen. And that is the complete, but not, I mean, it's incomplete, but it's not the whole thing, but it's as much as I could do <laughs> for a podcast because I wanted to, he did so much and there's so much I left behind, but I wanted to just, you know, put a spotlight on him in a way that was never done for me as a Rutgers grad, as a New Jerseyan. And I just want to highlight that there's stories like this where this is the stuff of myths, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's in our backyard. We walk past Robeson streets every day and monuments erected in his honor. And all I knew was that he played football, he sang and he performed and uh, he was in cap and skull, you know, <laughs> like that's it. So that's the story. And I apologize for mispronouncing anything that I did. <laughs> It's interesting to me how Paul Robeson isn't really taught because he has this amazing history, which he just gave out. And there's so much to him, so much both political depth, personal skill and the things that he's done, a kind of like uh, like a, a deep sense of morality that drove him to to do the things that he did and like a fearlessness at the time of like the height of the Red Scare. But we yeah. still have that kind of red scare now because we don't talk to him uh, yeah. about his history at all. And it's so much so that uh, among the, the only people who really know Robeson's history are like communists and socialists in, in America and actually like people outside of the United States. A lot of yes. people outside the United States know Robeson way better than uh, uh, we do, which is just bizarre for a country that claims to be to have such like a free press and a free like education system. Yeah. And I think it's, I want to also point out that it's one of those situations where there are a number of reasons, there are a number of groups and individuals that depending on what moment in time you're looking at Robeson's lifeline, you know, his timeline of his life and everything he accomplished, everyone has a reason to silence him and to make it so that we forget him. And it's not because you know, it was that time because that time those those issues are still alive and well today. Like there is a constant paranoia of Russia. There's there's racism alive and well. And you're told, oh, it's not that's not that's not here. You know, that's not that's never been here because we're New Jersey. But this story specifically shows all along throughout his life, he faced racism unless he when he went to Moscow. And that was his enlightenment yeah. moment. You know what I mean? That like, oh, it could be different. Oh, <laughs> you know, this, this, the color of my skin isn't like a ding against me in any way. And I think that's until we're at that point in history, which is who knows, maybe the next generation, maybe the next, next generation, but our living history, the knowledge that we know, we all have a story of where we've seen racism and, the fact that that was, it's been happening and it's been happening in New Jersey. That's, that's the yeah. key point, you know, union or not, <laughs> it was here. 
Definitely. Um, but that's that's the story. Do you want to enlighten me on the primary results? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So primaries happened a couple weeks ago, and because it was a mail-in stuff, it took longer than normal for us to get the results back. Brief comment. That's something I'm worried about as well for the general election. I'll leave speculation about that later, but imagine the time period between November, uh, the, day of the, the day of the election, and like the week or two it's going to take for every state to count all their votes. Uh, that's going to be chaotic and a very uh, turbulent time. But luckily, there, because of coronavirus, basically, and because New Jersey's politics are a little more predictable, there wasn't so much chaos. So I'm going to go through. Uh, Politico has basically all the results. In, it's 69% of the expected vote counting. So it's pretty safe. There's so much leads almost everywhere. There's basically no uh, expectation that things will turn around for any of the candidates. Yeah. So I'll just go through. I, actually, before I, I want to say, like, I had, um, the, I had like a couple hypotheses about what would happen in previous episodes. I said that, uh, uh, I'm not gonna count the Joe Biden one winning. That's obvious. That's, <laughs> you know, Biden, uh, what the local stuff was, I, I thought that basically all of the incumbents would, uh, would yes. win their primaries. <laughs> and that none of the non-incumbents would win. So let's see if that's true. I actually haven't really dug too much into these, so I'm going to be like live reacting to this. So with Biden, we have 86.2% of the vote went to Biden. I'm actually shocked that 13.4% went to Bernie. That's pretty dedicated that people still voted for Bernie. 94,000 votes. Interesting what about, enough. What about Mickey Mouse? Was Mickey Mouse really good? <laughs> they have everything else as other at 0.4%, which includes like all the third parties, or not third party, uh, like anyone writing in stuff for yeah. the primary. So I don't know what uh, it was. And then, of course, Donald Trump went unopposed. So it doesn't even list the numbers, just that he got the 49 delegates he needs. What lazy journalism. <laughs> right. So there's some breakdowns. It looks like. Okay, so it's saying there's a county analysis of who voted for who, and they're looking at the demographics of the county's candidates, and they're basically they're making estimates about how they appeal to different groups. So looking at, for instance, Joe Biden, you can see that basically he has decent support among like non-white populations, people who had less college degree didn't support Biden. He got overwhelmingly the support of people with college degrees, and that's not a uh, surprise. That's yeah, always a, a thing, like a talking point in media about how uneducated white people vote Trump. <laughs> educated. Yeah. It's like a little more complicated than that, but it's not totally wrong. But uh, the thing that's kind of left out is the Democrats actually don't make any attempt to appeal to uh, people who don't have college degrees, except for minorities who don't have college degrees, because that's part of their like cross-class, cross-race platform where it's like, you know, we're going to have a more diverse ruling class, so just come in onto this project. But uh, for white people, they just want the people with college degrees. They don't try to appeal to anyone outside of that, which seems to be confirmed in the results of <laughs> of who voted for them. So the Senate race, let's jump into that. We got Cory Booker versus Larry Ham. Uh, not good. Booker won leanly, 88.7% of the vote to Larry Ham's 113 if you want to get the actual vote numbers to see just what that disparity means, it's like 620,228 uh, votes with 69% counting uh, to Larry Ham's 79,096 votes. So kind of what I thought was going to happen because Bernie wasn't uh, leading the ticket, which would hurt candidates like Larry Ham, who was attaching themselves to, to uh, Bernie, and also because of COVID, his inability to campaign, whereas Booker doesn't necessarily need to go door to door because one, he's the incumbent. Two, he has a lot of wealth uh, from his like campaign donors, and he can afford the ads 
So that uh, that kind of hurts because I, I thought Larry Hamm was a decent candidate, but it's also not surprising. On the Republican side, it was more split, but I'm not sure how it's going to matter because, like, I don't think the Republican candidate is going to beat Cory Booker. Uh, so you have Rick and, Rick and Meta won with 38.7% of the vote, with Hearst Singh with 35%, and then Patricia Flanagan with only 18% in the Republican primary for a Senate seat. And so it's going to be Rick and Meta who's running against, I probably pronounced that name wrong, but Meta is running against Booker. I don't expect Booker to lose. That's my guess. Then it just gets stranger with the House results. So in the first district, you have, there's really nothing to talk about. Donald Norcross run unopposed. He's the incumbent. Uh, he won. His Republican primary ran, primary opponent uh, right, right, ran unopposed. So there's just going to be those two running against each other. Norcross would probably win. Second district, you have, uh, is actually a Republican-held uh, district. So I'll look at their things first. With 83.75% of the vote reporting, you have the incumbent, uh, Jeff Van Drew, winning with 81.8% of the votes, so 33,000 votes to Robert Pattinson, 7,000. The Democratic candidate uh, challenger is going to be Amy Kennedy with 35,000 votes. I don't know uh, what's going to happen there in terms of – I haven't looked too deep into the 2nd District. I, I don't know. I don't know if the, if the Republicans are going to hold it in November or if they'll lose it. In the 3rd District, my district – Andy Kim's the incumbent. No one ran against him, so he won. David Richter is going to run against him. I don't expect him to win, to be honest. Andy Kim's pretty is popular enough, so I think Andy Kim's going to win. Uh, in fourth district, you have the it's a Republican incumbent, Christopher Smith. He won with 94% of the Republican primary vote. On the Democratic side, you have Stephanie Schmidt. Uh, she won with 69.4%, 30,000 some votes. Don't know. Again, I, I don't really know. It's pretty much for all of them. I don't know uh, if. What do you know, swift. Mike? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's hard to know uh, beforehand. There's too many factors at play in November to like accurately state. Uh, what you could do, Mike, is do what everyone else the media does and go, hamana, 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 hamana. They were, they just go, you know, the one I like is going to win. And then they just make up reasons. It's like, yeah. no, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This stuff's too I, I pulled two people that came out of the polling station. Yeah, 100% and... of the people like this person. <laughs> Always what they do. And you're like, what are you talking about? So here's another incumbent one. Josh Gottheimer of the 5th District uh, won his primary against Aradi Krybik. I don't know. So he's going to be uh, up against Frank Pallada in November. And then you have the, uh, in the 7th or 6th District, you have the incumbent winning, uh, Frank Pallone. got 83% of the vote to uh, the two. There's two of them. Russell Cerencioni with 14%, and Amani Al Kataba with 2.7%. I actually went, we went to Rutgers with her. That's funny. I didn't know she was running. <laughs> so uh, that's cool. Maybe we could interview her. You want to hit her up, get her on the pod? Probably should. She's, she's got an interesting life um, and uh, uh, does like, she's founded uh, some like Muslim, um, she found a Muslim girl, I think, if this is the same person. I don't know. I imagine there's not many Amani Al Katabs in. I'm totally butchering her name too. Sorry if she ever uses. <laughs> but uh, she's uh, yeah, never refused to be on the pod just for that reason. Yeah, I'm terrible pronouncing <laughs> every name, including white people's names. As just like this, for instance, uh, Tom Malinowski ran unimposed. He's the incumbent, so he won. Say it with more confidence. <laughs> and then you have Thomas Keene Jr. He's going up against Malinowski. Would probably win. Then you have again incumbent in the eighth district. Unopposed. Uh, unopposed. Sorry, one. 72% of the vote in the Democratic Party, Albio Ciras, uh, 9th District, 
Bill Pascrell is the incumbent, won 82%, uh, almost 83% of the vote. Uh, uh, <laughs> give you an idea of the landslide here. It's ridiculous. He had 36,000 votes, and this person in second place had 6,000. I mean, but Ten that means three, uh, 6,000 people voted for you. Like, I'd be happy. I mean... I still have to be happy, but yeah. uh, you only got 15% of the vote, so it's still not great. You have uh, in the 10th district, Donald Payne Jr., uh, uh, incumbent, won the Democratic uh, primary, 89.3% of the vote. 11th district, you have uh, the incumbent is uh, Mickey Sherrill, ran on a post, won. The Republican, uh, his Republican opponent for November, Rosemary Betchy, also ran on a post, won. 12th district, you have the incumbent, this is the last district. Bonnie uh, Watson Coleman won with literally 90% of the vote against Lisa McCormick, in the, uh, who had only 10% with 6,000 votes to Bonnie Watson Coleman's 57,000. And then in the Republican primary candidate had Ryan on a post. I know less about Republican internal politics than Democrats because I just tend to focus more on Democrats. So I'm going to really say a little bit about that. I think it's pretty clear that incumbents won everything, literally everything uh, on both sides of the aisle. There was not a, a non-incumbent that won if there was an incumbent that ran. This should make people pause about the strategy of taking over the Democratic Party, to be honest. if you, uh, I, I know that the conditions of COVID were uh, made the primary more difficult, but I don't think you can reduce primary incumbents winning just because of COVID. Uh, well, you, if that was the case, it, 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 uh, I think you would see it closer. It'd be something like 60%, 40%, uh, maybe 70%, 30%. What you're seeing in almost every single case is numbers of, of almost like 80%, 90% of the vote, 70% of the vote going towards the, towards the incumbent. And I think that's because the Democratic Party, it goes back to who their base are. People want to take over the Democratic Party who are, come from a more progressive background and turn it into a, like a working class party. The problem is it's not just that the Democratic Party is fundamentally anti-worker. Uh, that doesn't say that doesn't mean the Republican Party is. The Republican Party doesn't pretend to be like pro-worker. They pretend to be like white, pro, like pro-white worker, which is like a, a a fiction that they constructed that that only white people are workers. You know, not like the uh, vast majority of the working class is uh, racially diverse and also includes women and stuff like that. So, like, the problem is you have a, the Democratic Party base is mostly middle class people or upper middle class people um, with college degrees and things like that. It doesn't mean that people with college degrees can't be working class. It's just that their uh, ideology and their allegiance ends up drifting towards uh, upper class people who, as I said earlier, just want to broaden the ranks of the ruling class to more people instead of challenging the existence and power of the ruling class and redistributing wealth and like other things that a lot of people want. And that's what they expected to at least happen with these uh, primaries. I think we tend to focus in the country too much on like the Ocasio-Cortezes and stuff, you know, who are kind of, to be honest, a, a fluke. Uh, most of the people who ran in the Democratic Party as like left-wing challengers lost and there was just a couple key, and they're admirable. Like she went up against, in, in, she's like one of my favorite uh, politicians right now. She, uh, her, Ilan Omar, and others, they went up against like very tough conditions and won. So it's like really admirable that they did. It's just the question is like, how replicable is this really, right? Like, and, and at least in New Jersey, it doesn't seem as very re replicable at all. The New Jersey machine is 
powerful as hell. <laughs> the Democratic Party, uh, Colin has mentioned it before. You can go back and listen to the episode with him, just how it works. It's 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 like a 1800s political uh, like apparatus that exists in 2020. That's pretty much how the Democratic Party's run in in New Jersey. And I think these results pretty much confirm that. What are your thoughts, Casey? I mean, my thoughts are the same. And I think you're in New Jersey, you're seeing a lot less grassroots organizing. You know, as you see organizations that, you know, are grassroots, but you're not seeing a lot of people put into power through grassroots organizing. Does that make sense? Like you're not exactly. gonna have not even not even Murphy. Yeah, no, you're not gonna. Exactly. And it's you need you need a lot of money in New Jersey to become elected, whether it's on a state level or even just a local level. You have attack ads going out for like sheriff races in New Jersey. You know what I mean? Like it, it's. I don't think this happens anywhere else. It is the weird situation that is exclusively New Jersey and probably. I don't even say New York because it's not comparable because you can get an AOC who I believe was a grassroots organizer who, you know, came into power through her organizing. She beat an incumbent that I think outspent her 10 to 1. I think it was was literally 10 to 1. And New Jersey, because of the landscape, because of how our districts are drawn, because of how confusing our political spheres are you you need a lot of money and you need a major group of people of organizers behind you in order to get your name out there and to fundraise for you and to advocate for you and go out on social like you have to get transportation you know you have to have a fleet behind you in new jersey like AOC was, I remember that was one of the significant things when she was elected, she did, was showed her shoes that she used to campaign. Like literally her shoes, I think she was like, I don't know if it was a heel or like a a low heel, but the soles of her shoes were so worn out because of all the walking she was doing. And in contrast with New Jersey elections and campaigning, you have to drive, you have to get your- You can't walk like you can in New York. No, in, in your district, like in New no. Jersey, the, the geographical area is, is just far like larger. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the the dynamics, the the demographics, everything changes within a town. Even even in like so to to campaign for a district is nearly impossible if you don't have a bunch of money, you don't have enough influence, and you don't have. Not even talking about family and friends helping you out with your election. You need a campaign for even the smallest election. You in also New need Jersey. a name. And yes. that's what a lot of people don't have. So like Larry Ham's the closest one with a name. He's very popular and well-known up in North uh, areas of North Jersey because of his long history of uh, organizing. And I would say he's 11.3% right now. Um, even if that bumps up to like 12 or 13, like that's still not good. Um, and that's something we need to like reflect, like what went wrong. Uh, there's probably certain things he couldn't have done at all. Like, how do you mitigate against the fact that he can't go out campaigning door to door as effectively? I'm sure they did it in some during manner, corona. But, was, but during Corona, it's not. There's not a good way to do it. Uh, so that definitely hurt him. I'm not going to deny that. But yeah. again, I don't think it cut out, say, like 40 or 50 percent of his vote. No. Uh, I, I don't think that's that's realistic. It'd be like idealistic to say that he would have won if there wasn't coronavirus, or it would have been like a near tie. Uh, it's just, it doesn't even mean Cory Booker's popular. Like if you look, he's not. 
these, these <laughs> candidates aren't even popular. It's just yeah. that uh, people either don't know the alternative or um, even knowing the alternative, they're afraid the alternative will lose in November, which is the same stuff that they do in uh, like, you know, the, uh, the general election for president. So like someone like Cory Booker has already showed that they can win, right? By virtue of being an incumbent. Yeah. If you're afraid that your incumbent will get replaced by a Republican, then you're going to be afraid to run uh, someone, uh, vote for someone in that primary. When when, and that's kind of what the Democrats do always. Like every time, every four years, they beat over a head that like nothing can change because the thing, the alternative is so much worse. And like, yeah. they're not totally wrong in the sense that the Republicans are deeply dangerous, and especially now, like just are like a rogue party that does a bunch of really comically evil shit. But the problem is uh, <laughs> Democrats make by like, by, by their like inability to offer a coherent alternative by the fact that when they get in, they always like, I don't want to say sell out because if you're always selling out, you just, you're just doing the thing that you uh, are, are, were elected to do in reality. But that, that's what they go in, help the big businesses and stuff like that. People become disillusioned and they create the actual conditions for Republicans to win like in 2016. And this is kind of what I'm afraid is going to happen in, in November is it, it, it is a good chance Biden will win. Um, I mean, it's still like uh, unknown. Like it's, it's, we can't really predict it, but Trump's pretty much mismanaging everything that he can. Like you have, even with an economy crashing and with COVID, if he just like tried to handle the COVID thing a little better and did like, a little more things for the people, he could probably win because most people would intuitively understand that there was no way to predict that COVID would happen, right? So yeah. if, if Trump was able to just set, like try to do a few things, he would at least be able to make the argument like, hey, I did these things. No one could have predicted this. And like, here's why you should reelect me. Instead, like, you know, we, we don't need to go into it, but like he's picked the complete wrong strategy, which somehow lets the walking corpse that is Joe Biden actually get, have a chance of winning <laughs> even though he can't even formulate a sentence and will probably like literally crap himself on stage debating uh, Trump. So uh, it's crazy because I don't know, I don't, no one has described to me what a Joe Biden presidency will look like or like what will, what will a Cory Booker, like people who vote for Cory Booker, I would love like ask you like, what do you think he's going to do with his power? Like how is he yeah. going to help you? And almost nobody has an actual answer for people, like no. for for any of these candidates, which is what shocks me. I, it's uh, politics is so devoid of of. I mean, it has politics has so much power, but people like remove themselves from it and just kind of like mechanically vote. There's no like analysis of like why yeah. am I voting for this person? It's it's just kind of like well, you know, that was totally the best chance we have, so I gotta vote for the best chance that we have. Where yeah. you get that sickening uh, vote blue, no matter who like rhetoric that's, that goes on yeah i mean that's american politics at this point uh, exactly and it's been that way for a number of years and new jersey politics in particular it's it, i mean it's a hellscape um what yeah. can you do <laughs> what is it it's uh that carlin code to a big club and you ain't in it yeah it? <laughs> i think we'll end on that that's yeah what a exactly good note what that's exactly it so um, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. Please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. In addition, check out our 
social media, including our Twitter uh, at Jersey underscore matters. Check out our Instagram, Jersey Matters Podcast, and check out our website, jerseymatterspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, Have a good week. See you next week. Yes. Goodbye. Bye.